The information discussed on this show is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All content is for general informational purposes only. It's Guys Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins. Guys Guys Radio. We're here to inform you, inspire you, empower you, and get you to think and feel, and who knows, maybe even act by virtue of the journeys, stories, experiences, and insights from the guests I bring you each and every week to the show. It's a welcome back week here on Guys Guys Radio. After about two years or so, we actually took a week off last week, and we're back Recharged our batteries, raring to go, and we've got two guys, guys, two guests today. We've got comedian, actor, Adam Ferrara. You might know him from Top Gear, the British show about cars, and also his best-selling comedy albums. We're going to talk about East Coast, West Coast, and a bunch of other stuff with him. And we've also got transformational teacher, Coot Blackson, who's going to talk about his book about the magic of surrender and how important it is to kind of let go sometimes and not really control everything. So great show. I think you're really going to enjoy these two gentlemen I have as my guest today. And I'm so excited to be back here. It's summer in Southern California. It's summer all around the Northern Hemisphere. A little different summer weather here out in California than I experienced in New York City and the Jersey Shore. Now, I love the Jersey Shore. I had a place down there in a little town called Ocean Grove for many, many years. And I would retreat from my life in Manhattan on the weekends and take New Jersey Transit down to the shore. I used to keep my car down there and I just had a blast. But I love it out here too. As miles and miles and miles of coast. They don't charge you to go to the beach. They don't charge you to park unless it's a state park. So you buy a pass that's good for a year for like $195 or something. But that covers pretty much every place. And uh, there's a lot of people out here and a lot of people want to get to the beach. But fortunately, there's a lot of beach. So anyhow, I've been living in downtown San Diego for a couple of years and really enjoyed it and got to really know the city and how it kind of flows here. And not that many people out here have lived in downtown San Diego, but it's actually very nice. And I live in a terrific building and really got to learn a lot about the city and about San Diego itself. But now we're going to move up the coast. And it's interesting. We're only going to go about 20, 20, 25 miles or so north, yet the temperatures are about 10 degrees different. So it's very strange because you don't find that back east. But anyhow, it's going to be beautiful. I can't wait. And that's coming up in a couple of weeks from now. So we're all set. For a great summer ahead, and I hope you've got one planned also. So let's get right to our interviews today because we've got two guests. We've got Adam Ferrara, Coot Blackson. Let's do it right now. It's Guys Guy Radio. Okay, Guys Guys Radio and Guys Guys TV, we've got a special treat for you today. We're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do some comedy with one of the top comic talents in the business, Adam Ferreira. Like myself, he's from the East Coast out here on the West Coast. He's an actor comedian who Entertainment Weekly is dubbed as hilarious. And I can tell you from listening to his comedy albums, he is terrific. He co-hosted the critically acclaimed BBC series Top Gear USA for six seasons. He starred in the AOL series in the driver's seat with Adam Ferreira and was the online host for the Barrett Jackson Collector Car Auction. He grew up in Long Island, 
got his love for muscle cars from his dad, who could fix anything, but Adam held the light for him while he was doing that. He's got a new podcast. It's called the Adam Ferreira Podcast. It's been considered a breakout hit, a must-listen. And his new comedy album, which I listened to the other day, is hilarious. It's called It's Scary in Here. It Mm -hmm. debuted at number one on iTunes. And one of his other albums, Unconditional, was called The People's Choice Album of the Year. He also is an accomplished actor. He played Chief Needles on Rescue Me. And also he worked alongside Edie Falco on Showtime's Nurse Jackie and also starred in the film Paul Blart Mall Cop with the incredible Kevin James. So welcome to Guys Guys Radio. Adam Ferrara, so glad you're here. Good to see you, my friend. Thanks for having me, Robert. Yeah, and the uh, my special is also on YouTube. It's called It's Scary in Here. So you can, you can see it as well as hear it. And I thank you for having me, my friend. Fantastic. So we have some similarities. You're funny. I'm, I'm not really. I'm trying. But were you always funny when you were a kid in school? Were you the cut up? Were you an yeah, observer? Yeah, no, I was, I didn't know I was funny. I was just being me, but I was, I knew that people laughed at what I did and I enjoyed doing it. So it gave me, gave me like an identity. It also gave me a a way to fit in. Cause like you said, my dad could fix anything. My dad was very mechanical. I don't have that if then go to statement. Um, but I love cars because that's when I got to spend time with my dad is, is in the garage with cars and I know how they work. Well, not anymore. The carburetor is gone, but you know. (laughs) theoretically i know what i'm doing but mechanically i don't so i always felt less than until uh i did stand up for the first time and my whole neighborhood showed up and i saw my father's face and he's like yeah okay and that's when i realized oh okay i can do this and this is where i can contribute because my dad worked like a dog you know he just he was always he left in the dark to go to work he came home in the dark and he was always worried about uh making making it all work and paying the bills and keeping everybody happy and healthy and and taking the time to teach us what it meant to be uh a good guy a good a good man to have a, a to, how important your character is so i always saw the stress in his face and when he came home and i could make him laugh that face went away you know when you were a kid and you were around the house did you make your dad laugh did you make your friends laugh yeah. and what what was the kind of uh, inspiration to say, you know what, I, I want to get up in front of people. Did somebody encourage you to do that? Was that your own idea? What what happened? I always was funny, but I didn't think I could do it. I didn't think I had, it, it's like, I, it was weird. I was like, I needed permission to do it. Like, you know, other people do that, not me. Um, and a couple of things happened. I had, uh, you know, Steve Vai, the guitarist, I had yeah, him on the sure. show, um, legendary guitarist. And, and I remember reading that he was from Carl Place, Long Island. And I was oh, yeah. born in Queens and raised in Huntington, Long Island. And I was like, wow, well, this guy from Car Place is doing something important. Maybe I should be able to do it. And I told Steve when I had him on my show, I said, listen, you're the reason I picked up the guitar and you're the reason I put it down. Who are we kidding? I can't play like <laughs> But it, it kind of gave me permission to go out and do it. And then when I went on stage to try it, well, I didn't know I was going to do it. I knew I liked it stand up. I knew I was funny and I saw I was 12 years old and I saw the Richard Pryor VHS tape. My uh my mom and dad went to one you know one of those one of those barbecues you go to sure. where you pull up and and your mother gives you the warning in the car before you get out. Like, <laughs> now your father does business with these people. Don't behave like animals. Don't clog the toilet, you know. Whatever. <laughs> So they were all downstairs watching the Richard Pryor concert and the kids couldn't come in, right? So then the adults went upstairs to have coffee and I went back in and it was the first time I saw a VCR and I went, it's a tape recorder. Rewind, pushed play. Robert, standing up, I just watched the whole thing standing up, my mouth open. And I remember saying, there was nobody in the room, it was just me. But I said out loud, look what this man can do. 
it was, I didn't know I wanted to be a comic, but I was, it was the first time uh, my entire attention was captured. And I knew that this is important. This seems like a profound moment for me. I don't know what it means, but I am, I am riveted to it. Uh, so I always remembered it. And then I went out and started buying these, these saving up my money and getting comedy albums. And my, my aunt gave me a bootleg tape of um, Carlin and, then I started just collecting, you know, Eddie Murphy and, and all this stuff. And Pryor was one of my favorites. So I put, it all goes into the machine mm -hmm. and then you don't know what you're doing. I'm on the school bus doing Richard Pryor bits, just one to protect myself from bullies. Cause they're not going to hit you if they're laughing. And two, <laughs> right. it was like, I, I could do it. So for your first stand-up act when you were 12, how did you come up with the material? Was it your own? Did you I write did, some jokes? I was doing Richard Pryor stuff. I was doing Richard Pryor on the bus. I didn't really, I didn't have a stand-up. I was just a funny kid. So but a lot of things, you know, at that age, you're a sponge. You just, you absorb everything. And a lot of it's from TV and a lot of it's from, you know, just the input. And then for some reason, the little guy in the head can put it together and make it funny. You know, when you're a kid, you don't know what you're doing. You're just doing. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I, when I went down to try it and I tried stand up, and um, my whole neighborhood was there for the open mic I went to. Because my, my mother was the original Twitter, Robert. I told her, <laughs> I told everybody. So because they knew in this little neighborhood that I was going to do it and I was funny, like, oh, what's something to do? We'll go. So we sold it out on a Wednesday night and I had five minutes um, and I had written stuff. But what happened was I think it was one of my cousins or someone said something. And for five minutes, I just made fun of him and everyone was laughing because they all knew everybody. So I did really, really well in a, in a tailored environment without doing the material I wrote. But I got the I got the the big hit the dopamine hit of what this could be and for the first time i felt like okay i belong here i don't know how long this is going to last and but that's the first time i went okay this is where i fit and i'll stay here as long as i can and i'll learn my lessons along the way do you think people from new york new jersey area just based on their experience there and how people are so they let you know if they like you they don't like you right away it's very different than here in southern california can you talk a little bit about do you think people are funnier back there? And then what's been your experience with the transition from East Coast to West Coast? I know you've done a bit about your, your wife's from the West Coast and you're from the East Coast. It's hilarious. Yeah. Um, well, basically, it's I think there's, there's an urgency of existence on the East Coast. You know, I got an apartment in New York City. There's, there's eight million people on a 26 mile island. You know, I, there's no time to wave good morning. Someone's going to take my cab. So there's a bang, <laughs> bang, bang. And there's, it's, New Yorkers are, are helpful, but there's no patience. The pace of, of living is just quicker, you know? So it makes you get to the bottom line of a lot quicker, you know, a, a lot. Do you have to discern and get to the bottom line of what you need to do to move on with your day. Uh, and you got to deal with weather. You, you're down, well, you're down by what, San Diego? Yeah. Here's the weather report in San Diego. It's 80 degrees and beautiful. It's going to be the same the rest of the week. Back to you, Bill. That's it. <laughs> You don't have to, you're not up on, probably you're not getting up on a January morning with snow on the car. It's six o'clock. It's still dark out. You got to take, and, and you, all you, you don't have an ice scraper. I've you done got it. a McDonald's bag. <laughs> so you sit with a McDonald's bag on your hand and you're cutting a hole in the snow on the windshield thinking to yourself, oh, when I drive, the snow will fall off. No, it won't. You're not smarter than nature. So then you open up the door and the snow lands on the seat. And now I'm going to drive to work with a wet. <laughs> you know what? I quit. Go back to work. That's it. I'm done. So we got to overcome a lot of other, you know, just weather in New York and, and, and density population. And, you know, you think so in answer to the question, are they funnier? I think they are more honest because there's not a lot of time to uh, 
there's not a lot of time to not get to the truth quickly. You know, it's it's like they're not passive aggressive people. They're aggressive passive. Pretty much. <laughs> I don't want to hurt you, but you're in my way. Okay. Adam Ferrer, my special guest on Guys Guys Radio. We're talking about East Coast, West Coast comedy, all kinds of stuff you've done. Mm-hmm. How did you get into cars? You're a Queens, Long Island guy. When yeah. did the whole car oh, thing man. turn you on? My dad always, my dad was very mechanical. He could fix anything. And he was, he was my hero. You know, he was the guy that, oh, you got to be like that. You know, and the one I got it, machines were very, my father was fascinated with machines and I don't have the mechanical ability, but I, I had the respect for what he could do. He built our house, you know, he, he did wow. kitchens and bathrooms, but he, we, we, he bought a piece of property on a corner and him and my mother drew it up and he Put it, he knew, you know, he never went to school. He was self-taught with everything. I got off the school bus one day. He's cutting a circular driveway into the front lawn. First of all, I, I, cause I heard the argument the night before, you know, my mother's like, Joe, why do we need a circular driveway? Cause I don't want to back up. Okay, <laughs> fine. Love it. I got off the school bus. He's got a bulldozer and he's cutting the driveway. He's grading it and cutting the driveway. He's on this bulldozer with a lucky strike hanging in his mouth, just doing it. I came running and I go, he's like Fred Flintstone. I go, pop, this is great. When did you learn how to do it? He goes, I rented a bulldozer. This is what we're doing today. Hold on. <laughs> there was no, I can't. What if I have to study? He's like, I'll figure it out. So when it came to cars too, he was like, he, he explained, that's when he took the time. I think I got into it because he took the time to explain it to me. Because he always was like worried about survival in the world. And he's like, look, if you get jammed up, just pay off your car first. No one's going to come and tell your house away. Okay. Great. <laughs> and if you're going to fix it, here's, here's what you got to do. If it does this, that means it's this. So I know, you know, I can't fix them, but you know, I can change the oil. I can gap a spark plug. I can smack the solenoid to get the starter to kick in. You know, I can do all that stuff. But um and he was just very much teaching me how to survive in the world, you know, and cars were his thing where he, he stopped and took the time to show me. So I think that's where I connected to the, uh, uh, I have a, a romantic fascination with cars. You know, it's freedom. You get to drive whatever you, you can, you can go wherever you want. And I, well, I really enjoy driving. It's, it's, it's meditative for me. Well, it's worked out nicely for you because you got that gig with uh, top gear for six seasons on yeah. BBC and then you were in the, in the driver's seat with Adam Ferreira. So how did that how did that come about? Were they Absolutely. aware of your? Yeah, I got a call from uh, my manager called me up. Uh, it was uh, AOL uh, Autos, um, and they had a they had the Jaguar and Land Rover account. So they needed um, they wanted to do some online stuff for it. So they called me up and said, you know, what do you think? I said, oh yeah, I got a couple ideas. So they uh, I met the the producer. We we seemed to get along. I pitched me ideas. He goes, these are great. They flew me up to Monticello. We shot them in New York. They brought me the line of Jaguars. They brought me the line of uh, uh, Land Rovers. So I wrote these these 30-second minute pieces of bar on each car, and I got to drive them. And they had the Russian arm is the car. When you see me sliding the car on the track and you see that tracking shot, that's, mm-hmm. a, uh, that's a Porsche sure. Cayenne with an arm on it, with a camera in it. It's really a lot of fun. Uh, and I did a bunch of those and they got millions of views. And uh, and I got to and I got to rip these cars up for a couple of days. So it was fun. Out here, at least in California, I see, you know, it's Teslas, Prius, yeah. Subarus, which I, aren't, I which aren't electric. But Ford sent me the, the Mustang, the Mach-E, uh, the GT performance model. It's a monster. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's necessary now because the earth is like, we've had enough. <laughs> Sorry, had enough. Um, and this is where it's going. I mean, the top three automakers shifted 30% of their production budgets to True. EVs. 
you know, and we got to build the infrastructure because you got to be able to charge these things. But this is just where we're going. I mean, I still got, I got a 1990 LS400, mm. 4.7 liter. I mean, this thing, it's got coffee cans facilities. <laughs> right. and, but it's, you know, it's the first year Lexus came out. But the car, the car's what, 30, 32 years old? But it's the first year that Lexus uh, came out with the big sedan. So it's built like a tank. Um, and I murdered it all out. It's all black. I dropped it. It's all, I put Euro lights in it and, uh, I gave it a chin, a little front and, and I drive around like the Yakuza. So it's, it's, uh, it's a fun car that I, I like to have, but it's, but it, it's, it's, you know, I need a cosigner to fill it up. So <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it's, but when I drove the Mach-E, I mean, there's spirit there. It's not like the, I like the theater. I like, you know, I want to hear the, I want to hear the engine. I want to smell the exhaust. I want, I want a camshaft that rattles my fillings at idle. You know, you know, it's, it's alive. This thing's alive. You know, the electric cars, they're, they're not alive, but there's spirit in them. You step on that, you step on the accelerator, it's instant torque and it's just, you're gone. Um, the experience isn't the same because there's no sound. I mean, I was shooting right here and we had to do a speed run. And usually when you do a speed run in like a supercar and stuff, you hear it, you know, and I'm like, mm, when the streets aren't roped off and we don't have a cop, I don't in security, I don't want to do this. But then I see these other Teslas just flying and you can't yeah. hear them. So, you know, it's, 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 it's a, it's a new evolution that I'm trying to embrace. I got into, it was funny. I had Chris Titus on the show. You're familiar with Chris? He's a comic yeah. actor at the show Titus. Yeah. Um, um, and he's a car guy. And we got in a big fight over the, the Mach-E calling it a Mustang. Um, it's not a Mustang. It's not a Mustang. I'm like, yeah. Remember the Mustang too? It was a four cylinder with a Pinto front end. I didn't hear you then. You know? <laughs> so it's a natural evolution. I think Ford was brilliant for naming it the Mach-E, the Mustang Mach-E, because it started the conversation. People are still talking about it. You know, it's a crossover, but it's not, you know, it's, it's, you, it's a polarizing move, but I think it worked because that's, that's the direction we're going. How did you go from there to get some gigs in the more traditional acting TV? You were on Nurse Jackie before that you were on Rescue Me. Those first. Yeah. I was a stand up, and I was, I was an actor first. So I was shooting Rescue Me at the time. So the show was uh, coming to an end um, and we were on tour, Dennis Leary, Lenny Clark, myself, uh, Kenny Rogerson and the band were on tour doing the Rescue Me comedy tour. We would do that every year to launch the season and uh, we're on a tour bus and Dennis said, um, you know, how do you guys feel about making this the last season? And Lenny and I looked at each other and went, no, we don't have Ice Age. Think about us. So um, I knew I needed another job um, and I, I had pitched this uh, car show to history and I shot the pilot. Um, and uh, they didn't they didn't pick up the pilot, but they liked me. So they said, do you know the show Top Gear? And I said, yeah. And he's like, oh, it's a perfect show, don't screw it up. They said, uh, well, we want you to be in it. Oh, we should meet, meet the executive producers and maybe you could be in it. And I go, I don't want to screw it up, it's a perfect show. She's like, go and meet them. I said, but look, I'm not an automotive journalist. You know, I'm, I'm an actor. I mean, I'm a car guy, but I'm an actor. She's like, just go meet them. So. I met the producers and what, what gave me a little bit of the reason I did it was because it wasn't just some people doing a ripoff of the show. It was the actual guys that produced the top gear in the UK. Mm -hmm. So I knew they were going to protect and, you know, be true to the original formula, but I didn't want to do an impression of those guys because it was just a perfect show. And they assured me, they said, no, we just want you guys to be you in this context. See if go meet the guys. So Tana Faust, Rutledge Wood were the other two co-hosts of mine. And Rob, I, I only worked with them. So I knew that they wanted those two. 
and it wasn't like a traditional acting gig where you go to a studio or you go to uh you know some producer's office and you read a scene with somebody this was like go to this church parking lot look for the mitsubishi evo and a bunch of english guys <laughs> Like it was a ransom drop, you know, they should have ended the call and no cops. So I showed up and there they were. There was cameras hanging around, a bunch of English dudes and uh, the two guys. And we started, I, I made them laugh. They made me laugh. And then we just started ripping the car around and, and I went home and I said, okay, that was fun. Then they wanted to see me again. This went on for three or four months. I quit twice. I went, I'm not coming back. <laughs> this, what's going to be different? I'm not coming back. What do you want? My mole on the other side? I'm not coming back. So they said, no, 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 come back. So, and after about you know, three or four months, they, they gave me the job. And I thought it was just going to be a summer job because I was still, I was touring as a comic and, um, and I was shooting some movies. So I was still working. So I figured, okay, I'll do this for the summer. We'll do you know, six, 10 episodes, whatever it is. And then we'll, and that'll be it. We ended up going for six years. Amazing. How did you, uh, how did you kind of get your footing as a stand-up comic? I mean, obviously you had to, you were inspired to do it. You started yeah. out doing other people's materials. Like then mm -hmm. you did your own material. I'm sure. Kind of, what did you learn and what was the tipping point for, for you to know, like, I got this. I, it was, it was more of a felt sense than, a, than a, a form thought. Does that make any sense? Yeah. You hit a golf ball, right? You, you know, you're like, Ooh, you yeah. get that ping. Exactly. This is the first time I felt the ping. And I remember thinking, okay, I belong here. Don't know how, how long, you know? And I just said, I belong here for now. So I just, and when you're 20, you're just devoted to something that gives you that feeling of, I'm going to say independence and identity because it wasn't cars. It wasn't my father's life. This was something that was totally aberrant to the family structure. You know, I come from a long line of, you know, guys work with their hands, you know, I just don't have it, you know? So um, so I just committed myself to it. I went down to the club every night just to sit. I sat at the corner of the bar and just networked and watched. Did you just observe society and culture, what's going on, and then formulate your thoughts and turn them into, you know, hilarious material? Or how did you come up with your, 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 bits? I was more of a confessional comic, Robert. I'm a student of the human condition. I'm not really a, a social commentary. You know, I do some, and, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not a political comic. I'm more about the experience of what it means to be you know, human and, and to, to, to when you, you, you talk about the frustrations and stuff and take my life, put it into a blender and try and make art out of it, you know? So I never really, uh, I, th that's the stuff I like, the things that I, I connect with. And I learned quite early that I like to do and brought me the most satisfaction is when I see someone in the audience shaking their head or pushing their partner, um, to articulate a feeling or a behavior that uh, people are aware of, but haven't been able to put into words. That's, that's, that's the most satisfying thing for me. What, what do you think, Adam, uh, and, and my special guest, Adam Ferrer, a tremendous comic and uh, co a comic actor also, and professional actor. What do you think about this whole cancel culture? How has it impacted, if at all, your work? You get, well, you get twitchy about, you get twitchy about saying stuff because everyone's, everyone's looking for a, a a story point to place their own agenda in, you know, and it's like, no, it's a joke. It's, it's, uh, because of social media, you can, you can pretty much and, and dial up any reality you want. And you could find like-minded people to think that that is that everyone thinks that way. And how dare you, if you're not in this group and it's, it's dangerous. So it's, um, it doesn't really affect me when I, what I write it affects me when I do stuff on stage and my wife sees it and says, mm, don't say, you know, don't, yeah, you can't. Uh, okay. But 
there's a certain balance that I try to achieve with, and I've always had this respect for other people. You know, you, if I did offend or anything, there's no malice of forethought. There's no intention to hurt. If there's anything in my, in my act, it's an intention to, to uh, unify, you know, I'd rather be part of the solution and part of the problem. You know, do you find that comedians, are you guys and ladies competitive with each other when you get together as a group? I noticed from watching Jerry Seinfeld with his comedian in cars getting coffee mm -hmm. that, you know, he really puts it to them. They have to perform. And some of the, it was interesting that some are really top names did not come, come over, in my opinion, that well on his show in that format, that they, they weren't on the stage with their material just being mm -hmm. funny. They just weren't that good. And others were fantastic. What, what are yeah. your thoughts on, on that? In terms of comedians' well, interaction with one another, if if you're into are people are comedians, yeah, I mean it's like any other profession, you know. Um, but there's also people, you know, comics. I, I've been very fortunate to have people help me, and I've been able to help other people. And my experience was, stuff doesn't come from you; it comes through you. So, you know, if you you, you just got to be a vessel and allow whatever's coming through you. If that means you're helping somebody else. If that means, you know, what material needs to come out now. Um, but yeah, comics are competitive. And a lot of this stuff is external validation is why we start doing it. And when you keep looking for it and it's not there, it's, it's a fallacy. Gotcha. So, but, but, but if, if someone's further on, further along the road up to you, it, it, it messes with your identity because you think, why them? I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, especially when you make your living at your art form. You know, right. There's a lot of times, still to this day, I'll be watching Netflix with my wife and we'll watch a movie and I'll see somebody I know and I'll lean over to my wife and go, he's working? You know, <laughs> of course. Yeah, I get you. So, yeah, but there's also a sense of community mm -hmm. and, um, and it's like any other profession. You know? okay. So tell us about yeah. your YouTube show and your tour. You got some dates coming up. Yeah, I got, you can go to my, I don't know when this is going to drop, but all my tour dates are at adamferrara.com. I hopefully I'll be coming to a city near you. Come see me. Uh, my special is on YouTube. It's called It's Scary in Here. Um, we recorded it uh, at Gotham in New York City. And it's it's a lot of fun. And that's the most current special. I've had a bunch of other ones that I'm sure they're out there on Comedy Central. I did three for Comedy Central and uh, a couple of albums and stuff. So you can find my stuff. And my podcast is called The Adam Ferrara Podcast. 30 minutes, you'll never get back. Fantastic. Um, and who is on, I, again, I don't know when it's going to air, but I've had uh, Nathan Lane did one for me. Uh, Joe Buck, the sportscaster, did one for me. Uh, Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top. Uh, Ann Wilson from Heart. Uh, Gabriel Iglesias. Uh, Chris Stefano, a bunch of comics. Um, Jay Leno, actually, we talked about cars and stuff. Edie Falco from Nurse Jackie did one. A lot of Sopranos guys. Michael Imperioli. We had uh, Vincent Pastor and uh, Robert Fernero on, so... Anyhow, fantastic stuff. Adam Ferrara, you're hilarious. Great career, doing great work. And I hope you'll come back again. And thank you so much for Love being on Guys Guys Radio. Our friend Dean put us together and uh, he was on the show as well. Yep. Uh, and uh, yeah, so uh, I would love to, my friend. Be well and be happy. Okay, you too. It's Guys Guy Radio. Okay, we're going to have a conversation about surrender. Coot Blackson is an inspirational leader. He's a transformative teacher, national best-selling author of the book, You Are the One. And we're going to talk about his new book, The Magic of Surrender. Coot's a member of the Transformational Leadership Council. He's a winner of the Unity New Thought Walden Award, and he's considered a next-generation leader in personal development. His mission is to inspire people 
to access their inner freedom, live authentically, and fulfill their life's purpose. Sounds like a lot of good stuff there. The Magic of Surrender, his new book, is a guide to help us move past inner struggles and discover the power of letting go of control and how this leads to more. And I think that's an issue that so many of us have about being afraid of letting go and needing to be in control where it kind of works just the opposite to that. So typically, surrender is considered passive. Coot wants to show people surrender isn't about giving up. It's about being strong, courageous, and learning how to tap in. So let's welcome Coot Blackson to Guys Guys Radio. Welcome, Coot. Thanks for having me. Okay, surrender. Let's start right at the beginning. Why is surrender the most important thing we can do right now? Wow. Yeah, I think surrender is the most powerful thing that we can do as human beings. I think surrender is a password to freedom, the password to the, the key to our next level. If you look at the great ones, the truly great ones, Jesus, Buddha, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Mandela, Martin Luther King, uh, even Elon Musk, you know, on some level, they, they all surrendered themselves to a purpose that was bigger than themselves. They surrendered themselves to life. They, they listened to their soul. And in surrendering themselves, they transcended themselves. They transcended, transcended their own sort of human limitations. And they tapped into another dimension of their potential, another dimension of themselves. And in that surrender, I think life was able to move through them and use them and create through them and manifest through them in ways that they could not have done on their own, in their own sense of personal power. And so I think in our culture today, uh, surrender, when we truly surrender, we let go. When we truly surrender, we there's less stress, there's less anxiety, there's more peace, there's more freedom, there's more flow. And I think in our society today, we have this idea that surrender is weak and that surrender is passive and that surrender is waving the white flag, that surrender is giving up, that if you surrender, you're going to be a victim, you're going to be taken advantage of, you're going to be left behind, you're going to be a doormat. And I'm actually saying, wait a second, what if you surrender, you didn't get less in life. Uh, but what if you got more? Because this fear of if I surrender, I won't manifest my goals, dreams and desires. And so if you surrender, what if you didn't get less than what if you got mo more than you could have imagined with your conscious mind, more than you could have even visualized and imagined with your own uh, mind's limited capacity to imagine life. And so just to really be clear, surrender is a letting go of control or letting go of the illusion of control that we think that we have. Control really is a master addiction, and control is one of the ego strategies to keep us safe. And so the ego, as human beings, we're constantly trying to control all aspects of life so that we don't experience the pain that maybe we experienced in our childhood. And so surrender is a letting go of control. Surrender is when we stop trying to force and manipulate life to fit our limited idea of how we think it should be. Surrender is letting go of the idea of who we think we should be and the life we think we should be living and opening to the moment, opening to what's seeking to express through us, opening to the life that's seeking to happen, open to the authentic truth of our hearts. It's, a t it's, it's when we take the limits off of life and in surrender and taking the limits off of life, we're then truly available and open to the infinite possibilities. And I think that's when magic can happen. So when we surrender, we're available to miracles. We're available to magic. We're available to the blessings. That's why the book is called The Magic of Surrender, because we all want magic, but often we're not willing 
to surrender. And so surrender is a letting go. It's an availability. It's, a, it's an allowing life to guide us and lead us. When people hear the word surrender and they think about letting go, are they surrendering to anything in particular? Is it to source? Is it to their higher self? Is it to just letting go of control? There's many ways you can interpret what surrender actually is and what you're surrendering to. Because people, as you know, particularly nowadays, have this need of control. If they feel like they're not controlling something, they feel like sometimes lost or you know, lost at sea or astray. So what are they, in your opinion, Coot, what do people need to surrender to and let go of? Yeah, you're surrendering to what you truly are. You're surrendering to your truth. You're surrendering to life. You're surrendering to, you know, your soul. You're surrendering to really what you are. And I think part of why uh, surrender can seem a little... I really believe that surrender is perhaps the most natural thing for us to do as human beings, even though it can feel scary, even though it can feel terrifying and we resist surrender, but it's natural. Like you breathe in, and you have to breathe out. Surrender is actually hardwired into our physiology. This is life reminding us that surrender is the nature of life. And so it's a surrender to life. It's a surrender to existence. It's a surrender to, I don't want to say the divine, to God, but it's not something outside of oneself. It's a surrender to what we really are. And, and so I think surrender is really natural, even though it it's, doesn't always feel that way. Um, I think part of why we tend to resist surrender or the ego resists surrender is the ego being our perceived sense of self, the sense of self that we have been conditioned to believe ourselves to be. Is the, it, it, and ego is not a thing. Ego is a process of identification, identifying with the body, with the name, with past, with history, with beliefs. And the more we hold on and identify with ourselves as that, the more scary surrender seems because to let go of control to, and the ego's job is to control. The ego's job is to reinforce its existence. The ego's job is to keep us safe. And so when we talk about surrender and letting go for our sense of what we think ourselves to be, ego, it's terrifying because to let go feels like a kind of death. To let go feels like if I surrender and I let go, then what I think I am will no longer exist, is going to die. And so ego kicks in and resists and says, no, I've got to, I've got to control everything because if I can control everything, then I'll exist and, and I'll be safe. And so uh, ego isn't a thing. When we can recognize that ego isn't a thing. It's ego that resists surrender. But when we recognize that ego isn't a thing, it's a process. Like this phone is a thing. You know, this, this headphones is a thing. This pen is a thing. Ego is, a, is the process of holding on, the process of identifying. Like a bicycle is a thing. The process of pedaling, pedaling is a process. And so ego is reinforced in our sense of identification. So when you can realize that we've been conditioned to believe that we are this ego structure, it, it can shift your relationship with ego in a certain sense. And when I think you shift your relationship with ego and what you perceive yourselves to be, it shifts your relationship with surrender. 
you know, in, in a really, really profound okay. way. Coot, what was going, you you know, very passionate about surrender. You've got a whole terrific book, The Magic of Surrender, about it. What was going on in your life to give you the kind of epiphany, if you will, to talk about surrender and share your knowledge with everybody? Yeah, I would say this was not the book that I thought I was going to write. Uh, I had all sorts of agendas and ideas of the book I wanted to write the book I thought I should write, the book I thought would be a bestseller, the book I thought publishers would want, the book I thought my audience would want. And I had an entire whiteboard of ideas, really brilliant ideas. And none of them really resonated. None of them felt authentic. None of them felt in integrity and true. And when I looked at the, the these hundreds of ideas, maybe one day I'll write a book about them. But when I looked at these ideas, none of, none of them felt aligned. The only word that I remember felt truly aligned was the word surrender. And when I saw that word on, 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 on the whiteboard, I resisted it. So here I am. I was resisting the book about surrender and had to surrender to the book about surrender and, and get my own ego out of the way, you know, of what I thought I should be writing about. And, and when I really let go, the whole book started to download itself and ideas start, started to flow. I realized that the book had a soul of its own and I had to surrender to the book that was seeking to be written, not just the book that I was seeking to write. And that's when, magic happened ideas came and things germinated and it took me back and i started to in that moment i began to reflect on my entire life and my childhood and my entire history and i saw that so much of my life everything started to make sense so much of my life so much of my upbringing so much of my experience with my parents and the story of my parents and how they met and all of these my parents met and, you know, agreed to get married, having, having never seen each other, met each other, spoken to each other, like they couldn't even speak the same language. They were living surrender. So, so much of my life was about surrender. So I felt like this was the book I was born to write, but I didn't realize it until, you know, that moment. And, and so about four years ago, my uh, mother, who I love deeply, was about four and a half years ago now, was diagnosed with stomach cancer. And it was a really hard moment for me. I was on tour for my first book, Traveling the World on a High, and life has a way of humbling you in, in various ways, you know, bringing you to your knees. And uh, I began to fly back and forth between uh, Los Angeles and London, literally every month to be with my mother during her chemo sessions. And I would, for a week, I would stay with her, then fly back and I would sit with her in chemo and hold her hand and I would cook with her and take walks with her. And I've just got to be with my mother. And it was so profound because I realized I hadn't spent this much time with my mother since I was a child. And I started to ask myself the question, why am I not, why have I not spent so much time with her? Why, why did it take to this moment when she was dying for me to prioritize this moment? I, I started to see that I'd missed out on so many of the beautiful moments with my mother. And it was during this time that I think the seed of the book of surrender was planted in a way that I wasn't aware in that moment. And so about six months into the process, the doctor said to my mother, there's nothing else we can do. You're going to die. So get your affairs in order. And it was an intense moment. And I looked my mother in the eyes and I asked her two questions. The first thing I asked her was, are you afraid? 
And she said to me, I'm not afraid because I know I'm not this body, that what I am, this body is a temporary vehicle for my soul, that what I am is beyond birth, is beyond death. That, and when I die, I'll, like, I'll be with you from the other side. And I felt such a sense of strength from her. Then I asked my mother, is there anything that I can do for you as your son to make your final days easier? What can I do? What do you need? And she looked me in the eyes. And this is, I think, when the seed of the book was planted. She looked me in the eyes and she said, there's nothing I want and there's nothing I need. All I want is what God wants for my life. In that moment, I realized who she really was. In that moment, I realized that she was free. This entire year, she didn't cry. She wasn't feeling like a victim. She wasn't mad at the world. She was completely surrendered to life. She wasn't attached to living. She wasn't attached to dying. She was open to the highest unfolding of her soul and her journey. And, and there was a profound freedom that she experienced. And so I think in that moment too, she showed me what surrender looked like, not, a, not on a meditation cushion or a mountaintop. She showed me in real life, when you're facing your mortality in the face of a difficult situation, what surrender means. And so that was an inspiration that triggered the book that I didn't know I was going to write. A beautiful story. My special guest on Guys Guys Radio, Coot Blackson, The Magic of Surrender, Finding the Courage to Let Go. Why do you think, Coot, so many people have trouble letting go? And what are some of the ways not to let go, but how they can prevent themselves from kind of doing it wrong? You know, the missteps that people make when trying to surrender. Yeah, look, I, I, I think when you realize that surrender is natural and you realize that letting go leads to more. And I think if people can realize that letting go actually leads to more and the next level of your life, whatever the next level is, requires that you let go of what's not aligned. The next level of your life requires that you let go of what's not working. The next level of your life requires that you let go of what's not true, what's not authentic. Yet as human beings, creatures of habit, creatures of comfort, what we tend to do is hold on, hold on to what we know, hold on to what's not working because it feels comfortable, because it feels familiar, out of self-preservation, out of comfort. And holding on simply keeps us stuck. Holding on blocks our blessing. And so I think what we have to be willing to do is one of the things that keeps us stuck as human beings, I wouldn't call it a misstep, but one of the things that keeps us stuck and blocks our ability to be free or manifest at next level are all the ways that we lie to ourselves as human beings. Mm -hmm. We are constantly, whether we're aware of it or not, lying to ourselves, not telling ourselves the truth about who we are, what we feel, and what we want. We stay in relationships that we know are not right, that we know are not aligned, where we're no longer in love, out of guilt, out of comfort. We work jobs and careers that perhaps we're not passionate about anymore or it's not truly an authentic expression of our purpose and what we've been put on the planet to do out of safety, out of security and wonder why we're not happy. And so to truly, I think, have a breakthrough in letting go or to take a first step in surrender, you have to be willing, number one, to acknowledge 
and ask yourself the question, what lies am I telling myself? What lies am I telling myself? I think if we start there, there is no surrender and there is no transformation without truth. There is no freedom. There is no fulfillment. There is no true authentic happiness or next level without truth. To me, the truth is what sets us free. And the first place we can start is the willingness to tell ourselves the truth. So what lies am I telling myself? And just get real. We have to want the truth more than we want what we have. We have to want the truth more than we want what we think we want. And to me, truth is real spiritual practice. Truth is real meditation. Truth is real therapy. And by not telling ourselves the truth, we keep ourselves stuck. And so what lies am I telling myself? Sometimes it can be scary to tell ourselves the truth. It can feel scary to let go and surrender. And, and, and so what the ego, which we talked a bit about earlier, what the ego tends to do is we tend to hold on. And one of the sneaky strategies is we play this game of confusion, of I'm not really sure what my truth is. I, I'm not really sure what my purpose is. I don't really know if this relationship is right for me. I don't really know where I'm going. I don't really know what I really want. When deep down, we do know. There is a part of us, if we're really honest, that knows. There's a part of us, if, we, if we're willing to get still, that has a sense. And yet sometimes it can be scary to acknowledge the truth because the fear is, if I acknowledge the truth, then what? Then what? the fear of the consequence, the fear of what will happen. And so the sense of the game of confusion that we play is a survival strategy of the ego to keep us safe so that we don't have to actually take action on what we know. And so what I tell people is take the pressure off of yourself of having to take any action. Take the pressure off of yourself of having to take any action and just acknowledge the truth. And that might mean, you know what? I'm not in love anymore. Scary as it might sound, I'm not in love anymore. And just feel that. You don't have to break up. You don't have to divorce. You don't have to do anything. But just acknowledge the truth. When you take the pressure off of yourself of having to take action, it can free you up to simply acknowledge the truth. I'm not in love anymore. Okay? I was going to ask you, I think you may, you may have answered the questions. I was going to say, since the name of the show is Guys, Guys Radio, and we do sometimes touch on men's issues, though we go way beyond that. What would be your advice to today's men in terms of how they can best handle surrender? Because there is kind of the, the whole macho thing going on where, oh, if I surrender, I'm letting go. I'm not a real man and all that. And obviously, that's not the case. Yeah, that's not the case. Look, I think you're a real man when you're willing to face the truth. If you're a real man when you're willing to acknowledge what's real, you're a real man when you're willing to live in integrity. You're a real man because it takes real courage to tell yourself the truth. It takes real courage to not lift someone else's version of your life. It takes real courage to face the consequences of your action. That is what it is to be a real man. And so when we're willing to take the, 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 the pressure of having to take action, we can get in touch with the truth. Like the truth is I'm not in love. It's scary. It's terrifying, but that's the truth. And feel that when we can feel the, 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 the pain of the truth, you know, like when we tell the truth. So the last question to, to kind of answer might be, what is, what is the, what are the lies I'm telling myself? What is it costing me? When we tell ourselves a lie, it is painful. It's meant to be painful. It's meant to be painful. It's not meant to feel good. And so to me, pain is a signal. Pain is a blessing. Pain is your friend. Pain is a signal that you're not living in alignment. So it takes real courage and a real man to say, you know what? 
I'm not happy. It takes a real man and real courage to say, you know what? I'm living out of integrity. Sometimes we get caught up in what I call the trap of success. We do something and it works. We get rewarded. We become successful. We get identified. Our ego gets identified with, oh, look at me. This is, this is what I've created in the world. And we keep doing it for one year, two years, three years, four years, five years, six years, a decade, two decades. And we keep doing it. Now we're successful by the world standards, but we no longer feel alive. We no longer feel on purpose. We no longer feel in integrity. And now we're caught in a trap of success and we're afraid to, to, to be honest that we're not truly happy. We're not truly alive. And so what I would ask the men listening is, what are you currently doing in your life that's working? Let me repeat. What are you currently doing that's working, but doing more of it, doing more of it, is inhibiting the next level of your growth, the next level of your purpose, the next level of your life. And so when you really are willing to just sit with the pain, it takes courage to sit with the pain. Of the, truth. Like, the lies I'm telling myself, wow, it's costing me freedom. It's costing me aliveness. It's costing me integrity. It's costing me joy. It's costing me my own self-respect. It's costing me. And to sit with the pain and let that pain marinate, let that pain burn, feel it. What we tend to do as human beings is we feel pain and we drug it away, drink it away, sex it away, shop it away, work it away, succeed it away, just so that we don't have to feel it. We numb it. To feel the pain takes courage. But when you feel the pain, that can start a process inside that can then move you into deeper truth and deeper alignment. It takes courage to live alignment. Fantastic. Coot Blackson, you're doing great work. The name of the book, The Magic of Surrender, Finding the Courage to Let Go. Coot, tell everybody where they can learn more about you and that you have an event coming up. Yeah, people can uh, go to my website, cootblackson.com. That's number one. Number two, if people feel inspired and want to go on a deep dive twice a year, I do an event in Bali. It's called Boundless Bliss Bali. So www.boundlessblissbali.com. 12 days in Bali, transformational. It's some of my deepest work. Uh, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and leaders are all invited. And I'm doing an event July the 12th, five days. It's a five-day summit if you want to learn how to surrender in every area of your life www.thesurrendersummit.com. Five intensive days, virtual, online, and it's free. So register. I'm bringing some of my friends on, Neil Donald Walsh, um, John Gray. Uh, oh, they've both been know? on the show. Yep, Neil Donald Walsh, John Gray. Who else? Uh, Martha Beck, who's been on Oprah, Ariel Ford, Barbara DeAngelis, uh, Catherine Woodward Thomas. I mean, the list goes on. www.thesurrendersummit.com. Okay, Coot Blackson, terrific stuff. The name of the book again, Magic of Surrender. Great job, Coot. Very nice to meet you. Hope you'll be back here on Guys Guys Radio. It's Guys Guy Radio. Okay, two terrific interviews with a couple of guys, guys. We had Adam Ferrara and Coot Blackson on the show. Adam's, a, again, a terrific comedian and actor. And I think what we learned from Adam is that, you know, to be a good comedian, you really have to be observant. You really have to be able to crystallize uh, what you perceive going on in the human condition. And you have to be smart. So next time you're watching a comedian thinking like, oh, yeah, trying to make me laugh. Yeah, ha, ha. No, it's a lot more than that. Putting together, building jokes, building a routine, being able to deliver it. It's a real art. 
And these comedians and actors are smart people, believe me. So Coot Blackson, I think we learned something very important from Coot about the power of surrender where we think we need to control everything. We have all this anxiety about trying to squeeze the life out of every single situation we have, where a lot of times it's much more effective to kind of let go a bit, align ourselves with the energy of what we want to have happen, and just put the love out there, if you will, and be in a position, a better position of allowing and receiving the things we want to receive. Guys, Guys Radio, we're here every Wednesday evening on KCAA in Southern California, 102.3, 106.5 FM, 10.50 AM at 8 p.m. Pacific Time, Wednesday evenings. The show rebroadcasts every Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific Time in Southern California. You can also check the podcast wherever you consume podcasts. We're there in over 101 countries. And also our new YouTube channel. We're on YouTube and Rumble. So if you want to watch the interviews, just go to Guys Guys TV on either platform and you can check us out there. And we also have a new, a new segment called Guys Guys Guide. We do it on YouTube and it's about taking some information from our guests select guests and putting it out there, uh, kind of tools you can use. And I think you'll really enjoy that because it's very practical applications of some of the things our guests talk about. So Guys, Guys, Guides, it's on my YouTube page, Guys, Guys TV, Robert Manny, M-A-N-N-I. You can also catch me on my website, robertmanny.com, where I've got over 300 blog posts about life, love, the pursuit of happiness, all kinds of stuff on there about health, wealth, romance, bromance, everything you're interested in in your day-to-day life. We probably have covered one of my 300-plus blog posts. You can also download three free chapters of my novel, The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love, which is a source material for everything Guy's Guy. It's about two dudes in advertising competing for love, sex, power, and money. It's a fast, frothy, sexy summer read. It's been called the male successor to Sex in the City, so you can figure out what it's all about and get a taste of it. You just go to my website, download three free chapters. So Guys Guys Radio, we're going to be back next week. And every week this summer, we've got lots of really cool guests lined up. I'm recharged. I'm raring to go. I can't wait. I hope you're with me because we're growing, baby. We just keep growing here on Guys Guys Radio. So let me thank all my guests, the 500-plus shows we've done, but 600-plus guests we've interviewed, my wonderful producer, Chris, and also you, most of all, my audience, my listeners, my viewers, Thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll see you next week. And until then, like I always like to say, guys, guys, finish first.